Create an Unstoppable Life, episode 174. Create an Unstoppable Life is all about mindset for the high achiever to help you build a life of fulfillment and freedom. I'm your host, Dina George, MD, a mindset and marketing coach and a family medicine physician. It's an honor to spend time with you today. Welcome back to another amazing episode. I'm so glad to introduce you to Trisha Wooden. She's bold. She's courageous. She's deeply introspective. She has a huge heart. She's a family medicine doc, a mom, a wife, a daughter, and lots of things to lots of people. To me, she's somebody who deeply cares, and I deeply care about her. So that's how I'd introduce you. How would you introduce you? I don't know how you add anything to that. Pretty, pretty complete. I also would say I'm a wellness expert, believer. I believe we can be well in our organizations and one of my big passions. Trisha and I met last summer at the Coalition for Physician Wellbeing. There as a physician wellness champion and program director for her institution because she deeply cares and she believes that the culture of medicine can turn towards positive, that physicians can have sustainable and fulfilling careers. Yeah, absolutely. I look at our uh, our heritage as physicians and the culture of medicine, and I can see why we got where we are. But then I also look at the numbers and the statistics for burnout and um, how we've tried to adapt and to the changing climate. And some of those ways that we've been taught probably aren't serving us all very well. And so thinking about how do we identify what are the things that work well and that we want to keep and What are the things that maybe we want to set down and do differently? You know, I was a doctor before I was a wife and a mother. It's really a very critical, important part of my identity. I love being a doctor. I don't want to stop being a doctor. And I want being a doctor to be an amazing profession for all the people that are working. So today we are talking about flourishing. And it's a great time of the year, right? It's the beginning of the year. We've all had great intentions for what 2023 is going to be like. Can you start with what flourishing means to you? It's a funny word to me because I don't think of myself as a particularly uh, embellished or artsy or intricate type of a person. It's not a style that I gravitate to, but I really think of it in, in this way of kind of overall health and growth and something that is really in a state of thriving. I made that my word for the year and it's the screensaver on my phone. And I found this picture of a really dense evergreen forest and there's really no color or even much texture, but it just looks very luscious and healthy and, um, and like it's thriving. And so when I think of flourishing in our lives, that's I think actually what I mean and less the embellished When I think of Flourish, I think of it's something that has all of the ingredients to really be its best. It's got the nutrients, it's got the the alignment, it's got the balance or the cohesion of all the different parts. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's not any one single thing, and you probably can't get there with just one thing. So in our institution, I talk about uh, we have to be well as individuals and we have to be well as an organization. It's not, we can't just do one and not do the other. It's actually, uh, it's actually both. And so many of the people that I work with sort of sit back and say, well, your medicine needs to change or the organization needs to change or my patients need to change. And then I'll just 
be better. Life will just be better. And that doesn't work out so well, right? We have to do it together. And so it's, it's this dance of um, helping our employed clinicians and all the people we work with understand what they're bringing to the table, what their mindsets and beliefs are, and then also help our leaders understand how our organization behaves and what biases and mindsets our organization brings to the table. And then again, helping them figure out like, maybe that really isn't the best way for us to think about our employees. Maybe thinking about them in this way, we get us different results or better results. And so for me, that's all kind of making the soil good, helping people go into a space where they feel cared for and cared about and that they really want to excel and want to exceed. I think more than anything, I care about creating spaces where my patients get amazing care. That to me is so important. When we're practicing in systems that don't work very well, part of the challenge is our patients. It feels like our patients don't get very good care either. I was thinking about that dictum in medicine where you know, patients come first, and that can't be true. It can't certainly can't be true all of the time. Maybe it's true part of the time or some of the time. But if we make that true all of the time, we end up with workers that don't feel good about the care or the work that they're providing. And in the end, the patients end up suffering with poor care as well. And so for me, this whole issue of wellness in organizations is about helping to take care of the individual, but also to take care of the patients as well. And what I hear you saying is that there's a responsibility on all sides for an organization to change. The individuals must change and they must change in a way that the culture changes to support those organizational changes. So it's all directions that we have responsibility internally and we have responsibility externally. When I think about what I want for my patients, I want them thinking about their health every single day, not just the times they see me, especially since my practice is exclusively hospital medicine. <laughs> so I don't want them to get sick and now they're thinking about their health and they leave and do whatever they want, which might compromise their health and then they come back but rather for them really to flourish. It's thinking about their health and the ingredients that are going to optimize their health every single day. Yeah, absolutely. You're not probably going to be healthy if you're eating fast food and not moving your body and not sleeping and not connecting with other humans. And similarly, our organizations aren't very healthy if we're not connecting with the people who work in those organizations or if we're feeding them garbage or if we're not behaving in ways that are respectful and an organization is literally just a piece of paper it's made up of hundreds sometimes thousands of humans who work for that institution it's not a person it's not a thing we tend to personalize it and we tend to put blame or associate human-like behaviors to the organization but really i think most organizations are made up of people who are generally well-meaning and want to do the right thing. And yet somehow they're in these systems where they think they're doing that or they don't realize that what they're doing isn't accomplishing that. And so that's really where helping the clinicians be well and empowered and understand how to interface with that system a little bit better really starts to build these virtuous cycles. And that's, I think, where we start to get at what it means to flourish in an organization. The other wellness conference I went to this year was the uh, International Conference on Physician Health. And it was really where this idea about flourishing organizations was presented to me in a way that I went, wow, that's 
really what I want to work on. You're thinking about the behaviors that it takes to have an organization fail and that or behaviors that it takes to make an organization just do okay. And then behaviors that it takes for an organization to flourish. Those are not the same thing. The behaviors that get us to okay are probably not the same behaviors that are going to get us to the state where we really feel like we are, we're thriving and able to thrive in our organizations. And so being um, positioned to help starting start to articulate that to our leadership and to our teams and to our individual clinicians has been a really fun way to explore that concept. I don't know that I still have it completely figured out or can articulate it as well as I would like to, but it's definitely the direction I think I'm headed this year. Yeah, that's awesome. Because how many of us wake up and say, you know, I I really want to work for an okay organization, or I want to work for an organization that sucks and sucks the life out of me. Like none of that, none of us say that. None of us went to medical school for that. We became physicians so we could provide the highest level of care at a standard that that we believe patients deserve. Yeah, and I actually think this is really true of most administrators, most nurses, and most everyone who works in healthcare. I don't think there's anyone at this point who woke up and was like, I really want to go to my job today and screw up healthcare. I just don't think that that's what they what they thought, or even if it is what they think now, it's probably not what they thought one day. But I do think that organizationally, sometimes we get uh, we accept mediocrity that we actually have been in a state of distress to the degree where we think we're failing, and so mediocrity feels good. Mediocrity feels like it's it's an okay place to be, and. The problem with that, with staying in that place is that humans like to feel as though they are excelling. And I think having a goal that is, feels impossible or feels really large and then breaking it down into smaller steps and working towards that ideal, even if you don't get there, is going to feel a whole lot better than just saying, well, we're, we're okay and kind of stopping there. We have a friend who's growing their practice in Jacksonville, Florida, family medicine practice. And he showed us the building that's being built. And there's a huge break room. And in the break room, a refrigerator, like a kitchen to make healthy food, big places to sit. You're going to have a TV available if somebody wants it because he wants his staff when it's downtime to really be down and to be in an environment that they're comfortable in with plenty of room and a place to walk outside and sit down enjoy the Jacksonville weather. And I thought that's really neat that he is thinking about how do I maximize opportunity availability for my staff, for them to be healthy, for them to have a better day, better energy from the space that we've created. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel like COVID, if nothing else, helped us really understand how critical some of those communities are and how isolating that medicine has become and continues to be in many sectors. So I work in a very large family medicine clinic practice, and I can go very long periods of stretches of time, weeks even, and not see some of my partners who work in the same building. We come in, we put masks on, we sit down, we start seeing patients, we do our work, we get up and we go home. And we have we have just now started to have in-person meetings and um, I'm meeting some of my partners that were hired in the pandemic for the very first time. 
the ability to sit in a room with somebody and get to know them and connect with them is vitally important to being able to work with them. And then being able to get a shared vision about what you want your practice to be like. So your friend who wants to have a practice where the staff feel cared for and feel like they can have downtime. And when they do, they've got a place and a space to go. Like That's a intentional cultural build. And it's not rocket science. We can do that. We can do that in lots of places and spaces, but it does take attention. It doesn't just happen without some thought. You bring up a, a good point. So what came to mind when you talked about seeing people that you hadn't met before, but even seeing people that we have known pre-pandemic, I forget that this is a different person compared to a few years ago when I knew somebody. So I I pick up and carry on without the realization that their life has probably dramatically changed over the past few years with regards to what they've had to manage or the challenges that came up for themselves or their career or their families. And I could be more mindful of that and respectful of that. <laughs> well, and and not just now, I think always, right? We are always slightly different people the next time around, like the next time we interact with somebody. And I think this is a really important point for people to keep in mind, especially if they've had challenging interactions with partners or with patients or with administrators or even with family members or friends or other people in their life, there's always the possibility that that person um, will be different or that you'll be different when you show up to that relationship in the future and that those interactions won't be the same. They'll be different. And I think that is important because when you take the bias into the relationship that you're dealing with someone who's difficult or someone who is an adversary of some kind, then we tend to bristle and we tend to be less open, which just promotes that type of interaction. So when we're thinking about trying to make changes, we need all of these people. We need everyone who works in the healthcare system to have a vision about what the healthcare system could look like, even if it's not across the whole United States or across the whole world, even if it's just in your particular space on your ward in your clinic um, to have a shared vision about what you want to work towards. And then people can have a conversation about how they're doing that. But if you know that that's what everybody's working toward, I think it makes life a lot easier. And actually, I think we're really lucky in medicine because for the most part, we all want to provide great patient care. We can argue about what great patient care looks like and whether or not what we're doing is great patient care. But when you dial it back to that and you can ask questions like, how does this promote good patient care? How, help me understand how this is the right thing to do for either this patient or for all the patients. Then you get to this place of understanding and it's not, I need this and I'm not getting this or I want this and you're telling me no. I'm curious on what the components of an organization that flourishes, like what are some of the markers? What are some of the characteristics? What can you tell us? Yeah, I think generally you have more positive interactions than negative. And so the tenor and tone of the communication, the um, tenor and tone of the way that people speak to one another really is focused on the person's strengths, what they're doing well, really focused on uh, that growth mindset of interval improvement and really recognizing um, that there has been improvement. 
There's also an element of really looking at the person's individual strengths and making sure that they're in a position that really works towards their strengths. And so I think about this with my medical assistant and different medical assistants I've worked with. I'm not naturally the most detail-oriented person. I do really well when I have a medical assistant who's incredibly detail-oriented. And even though their detail-orientedness drives me crazy sometimes, that makes a good team, right? But if I don't recognize that and I'm just portraying annoyance at the fact that they're pointing out all the details that I'm not paying attention to, then that's not going to get us to a place where we have a really good flourishing relationship. Um, I also think there's a bit of a, there's a, a, some, a concept I love called an Everest goal, and that's the goal that's impossible or feels impossible. And for me, my Everest goal is to eliminate burnout, like not have it be a thing. I don't know whether I'll ever get there or not, but the pursuit of it is um, a noble, worthwhile goal, and I'm willing to work really hard and to, to try things, maybe things that won't work or maybe fail. Because I, I feel like that would really help to move our profession to a very different place. Having people have goals that seem unachievable, or, but yet presented in a way that breaks them down so that they can have small wins is another um, component of a flourishing organization. How about a flourishing life? What are the components for you? The foundational one is faith and my belief system I, I actually tried to have a life that didn't include that and it didn't work out very well. And so the belief that um, all humans have value and that there's a, a force or a, a power that binds all of us together in different ways that we're all part of the same fabric of humanity, that foundational belief for me is just critical. I don't know that I could flourish without that. And then the second component is really taking a look at my brain and making sure that the, some of the thoughts and programming that I have had placed in my head are <laughs> examined and questioned. And maybe those are things we keep and maybe those are things we don't, um, but not accepting them just as truth and reality and, um, and operating in that default mode. And then I think there's some challenge. I, I don't think that humans are meant to um, just have life be easy and fun all the time. There, there should be something that's a little bit of a stretch or a little bit hard. But I also don't think that means we have to race and hustle and work ourselves to the bone. We should be, we should be able to enjoy that journey and find meaning and purpose along the way. Amazing. I love that we share the same faith. Yeah. I think that's so much fun. I have to play with it in my mind. Like intellectually, I can say all humans have value. Sometimes in the moment when I'm not seeing it, I just tell myself, I may not see it right now. <laughs> right. So that I can I can move on and not perseverate <laughs> very about the moment. <laughs> when I was a student, probably when uh, very early on as a medical student. I was working with a preceptor and he said to me, he said, when a patient is being difficult, just look them in the eye until you can see Jesus in their eyes. And once you do that, you can take care of anyone. And I cannot even tell you how many times in my career I have been looking at a patient who has been behaving really, really badly in ways that I was judging to be pretty terrible. 
Um, and, and I will, I will just look at them until I can, I can see it. And sometimes it's not in the first visit. Sometimes it takes multiple visits for me to get there. But, um, I think with most people, eventually I, I can, and I do, especially when I, I do it with intention. Um, and it's been remarkable to see some of those, the ways that those relationships play out in my world when I do it. Cause chances are behind the behavior is suffering. Right. And you know, part of, I think what makes medicine challenging is nobody comes to you on their best day. <laughs> I mean, especially you, right? You're in the hospital, but even for me as a family doctor in clinic, you know, people are bringing their well child and they're, they're terrified you're going to find something wrong with their child or their child's not going to be meeting their milestones or something unexpected is going to come up or at very best, they're neutral about, you know, I have to come in and do this thing today. I'd much rather be doing something else. And so there isn't a lot of positive emotion usually from the patient's side that leads, right? And so we walk into these rooms over and over again and these encounters over and over again that tend to have a pretty highly negatively biased emotional charge to them. And I think that just makes it even more important that we figure out how do we behave towards one another in terms of colleagues and staff, and then how do we take care of ourselves um, and each other outside of work, those things become even more important. For sure. I think flourishing requires a sense of humor and even just a, a lighthearted sense that perfection is not the standard, that we lead real lives. And yeah. in the moment, we may not know what to say. We may not know what to do. We may get it totally wrong. Yeah. And we have to let ourselves off the hook and show grace and compassion to ourselves to let our imperfection be okay. Mm-hmm. And learn whatever it is we can learn from it to be able to move on to what's next because we don't lead stagnant lives. Yeah, I I used to take myself so seriously and I still tend to, but I've been really working on trying to find lightheartedness and humor and laugh at myself and other things that are funny just because I what I do is is very serious. We take make important decisions that affect people's lives. And we want to be respectful for that, of that. But we don't have to take ourselves so seriously that it becomes the whole experience of practicing medicine. Right. Because on any given day, we're, there's some things that are going to go better and there's some things that aren't. And there's a finite amount of what we can control. What else do you think is part of a flourishing life? You said uh, the things we can control, and I think um, recognizing that on any given day in any situation, the only thing I have a prayer of controlling is myself and allowing the other people to be them and just working on loving them the way that they are has been so freeing and not getting caught up in trying to control other people or other people's reaction really allows the space to be able to really flourish. Yeah. I've said it as a physician. I've said it as a mom where I'll say, what you're doing doesn't hurt me, but it hurts you. And this is how it's hurting you. And I say that so that you can see or you can start to control what it is that you can control, the things that you can make better that can help your life look better or feel better. Yeah, I have patients who don't want to come in to get their diabetes checked because they're afraid I'm going to be disappointed in them. And I'm like, A, it's just data. 
<laughs> and B, I'm never going to be upset. You're just a human who's doing their best every single day. Like it's what I do. And sometimes my best isn't great. Sometimes my best is kind of mediocre. It doesn't mean my best won't be better tomorrow or that it won't be better at some other point. Or it'll probably be bad again. And that's all okay. Not that it has to be perfect all the time, but that, that recognition and really embracing being a human has just been a much more peaceful way to live in the world. I think that brings up another point of a flourishing life, which is leaning into the discomfort. We will never flourish when we're hiding. Right. We have the opportunity to flourish when we lean into what we don't know, what we're most scared of, what we're uncertain about, what we doubt. When we lean in and open up about our guilt or our shame that we're carrying, that allows the opportunity to start to bloom. The growing up emotions weren't something that we did. That just wasn't taught. It wasn't allowed. It wasn't something I had any comfort with. And then this cultural belief that if you're not happy all the time, you're doing it wrong. You combine those two things together and, and suddenly you can find yourself in a life that's pretty small and doesn't feel very good. And so the whole uh, idea that just every emotion is okay and that humans were designed with the capacity to feel all of them and then really working on the willingness to be able to sit with them when they're uncomfortable and not try to fix it or try to push it away, but just allow it. And um, that is definitely still an area of growth for me. It's still an area where um, I wouldn't say that's my strongest suit, but the more I do it, the better it is, the easier it is. And the better my overall quality of life is, even if in those moments where I'm doing it, it doesn't feel very good at all. Here's another thing that I think is part of a flourishing life. It's to stop labeling things as me and to start thinking about and labeling as a habit. I have a habit of doing this, but that doesn't make the thing me, which is a brain game in the sense that if that's a habit, habits can be changed. If it's me, then it's never, it, it won't be changed. What do you think? Yeah, I love thinking about habits and what are my habitual thoughts and how can I adapt or adjust those, especially so they don't just run on autoplay all the time and unexamined. I also like the idea that the me that I find in meditation and the me that I find in prayer is not a doctor, is not anxious, is not a mom. Like that, that me is kind of separate. I think it's the same thing you were saying. It's just a slightly different take on it. Like I'm not anxious. I'm having an emotional experience that I would label as anxiety. And if it's something that I'm experiencing, then it's inherently changeable. Yeah. It's somehow it, it simplifies it for me. So it, it's looking at what are the contributors to the habit? Right. When am I likely to do it or default to it? Or when does it come up? And then addressing that. Yeah. Because then the habit becomes unnecessary. So if I'm worried and eat, <laughs> I don't need to solve for eating. If I solve for and I look at the worry and what's creating the worry and understanding what I can control and what I can't control and making peace or creating some sense of peace, the eating is no longer as necessary. What else do we all need for our flourishing life? <laughs> Sleep. Huge. Huge, huge. I spent so many years of my life not sleeping. If I could go back and help my younger self know anything, it was that it was not a badge of honor to not sleep. 
I go to bed very early now and I get up very early and it's a schedule that works for me and that feels good in my body. And I think finding that schedule and then really making that be such a priority just makes everything else go better. I was talking to a patient the other day and we were talking about his diabetes control. And he said, so you mean to tell me that I can't just treat this like a bag of bones, a meat sack that I'm carrying around in the world, meaning his body. And I was like, yes, you can't treat your body like a meat sack. You have to actually take care of it. And there's no flourishing without it, right? We don't get to live without our physical bodies to carry us around. And so that does mean priorities, prioritizing sleep and hydration and nutrition and movement. Those things are required for us to feel good. So one of the game changers for me has been the aura ring. It is a way to have some objective evidence about how your body's doing. Mm. And it has taught me that just like I can't always trust what I think and believe it's true, I can't always trust how I feel and believe it's true. So more sleep might not be the answer. Less sleep might be. Mm. Or if I'm not getting enough sleep, it helps me to see what's my heart rate doing and the variability What's my sleep patterns doing in terms of deeper sleep or lighter sleep or REM sleep and how that combination is working? It provides suggestions on days to work out harder, days to take it easier, days to consider giving taking a nap. So instead of me making it up and thinking, oh, I need this or I need to stop doing that, it, it's a way to add some ad- objective information. I really like it. Like I don't want to go without it anymore. I haven't used one. I've heard of them, but I've never actually used one. I think it's for for those of us who like data. <laughs> I, like I don't know. Data. I don't know anyone that likes that likes data, but I do think that most physicians spend an inordinate amount of time from their neck up, and we really do need some help sometimes understanding that we got to inhabit the whole thing. We've got to be in the body that we're in sometimes and make sure that we, we, we pee. I was, I'm laughing because I worked with a coach who was not a physician for a while. And I was talking about my day and I was like, well, I don't have time to pee. She's like, wait a minute. What are you talking about? I'm like, well, I don't have time to pee. She just was so blown away. Like that. I, I wouldn't think that I could stop to drink water and go to the bathroom and take a breath. And that I would so blatantly ignore my physical, my physical needs. And that's really one of the moments when I realized how distorted some of the ideas in medicine that I was taught were, (laughs) that it would, that it would actually, I would get to this place where I wouldn't, I would completely ignore my own physical body, my own physical needs. And that really not everybody does that. Like, I thought that was just how everyone did it, but apparently that's not how everyone does it. And there's a different way. A lot of people in medicine do it. Like you'll hear of women who work all the way up until they're having contractions five minutes apart Mm -hmm. and just go, oh my word, what are we doing to ourselves? Right. The amount of bladder abuse. So I think flourishing, it's an internal job, but I think there's an external aspect around it. Like to me, what comes up is decluttering. Mm -hmm. It is hard to flourish in an environment that is cluttered. I think that a cluttered exterior space, it just reflects cluttered brain. I, I think, and I think you can clean up the exterior clutter, but if the clutter seems to recur very quickly, then probably your brain is cluttered. I have personally always been someone who loves to purge and get rid of things and 
I have a very low tolerance for clutter and stuff. And so I certainly agree. I think having the right amount of stuff, not too much, not too little, whatever that means for you. But if you find that it's hard to um, keep it organized, then I think actually working on your brain first is one of the ways to go. For sure. And having a, a, the right number, again, whatever that number is, but it's stuff that is delightful, mm-hmm. that serves a purpose and is fun to look at, mm-hmm. brings joy. That's part of a flourishing life, what you wear, what you put on your body, what you carry with you what you, your work environment and what that looks like. Yeah. I love clothes always have. And I have a lovely closet that I will spend a couple hours in once every month or two. And I'll just clean it and put outfits together and I enjoy it. It brings me great joy to plan all of that. And then it also saves me from having to decide what to wear when I get up and go to work in the morning. It's one of the challenges when you don't get to wear scrubs to work every day. So you got to tell everyone your Navy trick. Oh, yes. If you are put on an outfit and has static, you uh, rub lotion on your skin underneath that area. We'll get rid of the static cling. Trisha is also a Navy veteran. <laughs> Old Navy habits, <laughs> diehard. Part of women warrior healers. Yes. <laughs> All right. Final advice. What does everyone need to know? I think everyone needs to know how much they're loved. Changes things, right? When we feel it, yep. when we see it, when we reflect it. If I could help everyone know that they were loved. And I could tell everyone listening that it, it comes from her heart, like genuinely from her heart. So know that you're loved no matter where you're at, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter where you are in the spectrum to flourishing, to barely surviving, you're loved. It's that simple. I love you, my friend. I feel like God put us together. I'm so thankful for you that you're part of my life. You're part of our communities. And I can't wait to see you again in real life. Thank you so much for having me and encouraging me to do this.